Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tolman. Welcome back, everyone, to Talk Dizzy to Me. My name is Dr. Abby Ross. I'm a vestibular physical therapist and neuroclinical specialist, joined by my co-host, Dr. Danielle Tolman. She's also a vestibular physical therapist, and today we have some frequent flyers. All of the members on this podcast today have been here before, and we like them so much you like them so much that we brought them back. We're going to talk about a lot of different topics today, but from various different perspectives. We have audiology, we have rehab, and we have ENT. So to start off the show, I'm going to pass the baton and have each one of them introduce their, themselves. I also want to mention Dr. Jeff Walter, a vestibular physical therapist, is pretty much going to lead the show today. So Danny and I get to sit back, relax, and like you, enjoy the show. Let's kick it off. Who wants to introduce themselves first? Hi there. I'm Michael Tashida. I'm a neurotologist in Wilmington, Delaware, in Philadelphia. I'm Jeff Walter, a vestibular therapist in central Pennsylvania at Geisinger Medical Center. And my name's Liz Femler. I'm a vestibular audiologist, and I'm actually currently with a company called Interacoustics that makes the products to help better diagnose our patients. All right. Shall we get started? Let's do All it. Right. So... First question we'll throw out here is uh, kind of directed for Michael, and that's um, when you encounter patients that you suspect have Meniere's disease and they ask you, well, what causes this? How do you explain that to your patients? Hmm. Well, uh, the way I explain it is that the ear has been injured in some way. <clears throat> and uh, I just tell them that the inner ear, no matter how you injure it, it swells. It's not really, really very much different than any other part of the body. If I suck my thumb too much, if I burn it, if I stick it with a pin, or I smash it with a hammer, it's going to swell. And the inner ear responds the same way, regardless of how it gets injured. And the problem is that in many individuals, we don't know how the injury happens, and the ear becomes so broken that it takes on an unreliable life of its own, the life of a jalopy uh, that just kick back, you know, that, that kicks and bucks and uh, uh, stalls uh, at will and uh, imparts a large amount of unreliability to our lives. Um, have you, so dovetailing off that, have you pursued uh, MRI imaging for high drops and do you think it has any value? And maybe just to take a step back, for listeners that aren't aware, a very common anatomic change that occurs in the ear with Meniere's disease is endolymphatic high drops where the endolymphatic spaces are enlarged and we're getting scanners that are now powerful enough to actually see the enlarged endolymphatic spaces and thus you have diminished paralymphatic spaces. And do you, do you see this of value and when you have you used it in clinical practice? And I just wanted your comments on that. Yeah, I really think that it's uh, it's fascinating that we can do this imaging and see the cross-section of the cochlear duct, which should be triangular and in, in normal patients. But in if there's an accumulation of endolymph, as there is in all patients with endolymphatic high drops clinically, then there's bulging of the Reissner's membrane, causing it to be more less triangular and more round. The problem is that the imaging is expensive, and usually the presence or absence of the visible high drops is uh, a little, uh, really follows the clinical uh, state of the patient. Usually you're not really wondering if there is high drops there. If people have high drops that's clinically significant, they have low frequency hearing loss. They have a sense of fullness that localizes to one ear. They have fluctuations and tinnitus that is low frequency rather than high frequency. And then, of course, episodes of vertigo or long periods of disequilibrium that um, we can correlate with eye movements uh, to their uh, ear activity. So <clears throat> it's not really very useful to me to image someone uh, in order if who has that kind of a clinical presentation in order to determine if I'm going to treat them or not. You know, there's a, a rule, you know, you'll, sometimes you only order a test if, if the results of the test are gonna alter your decision-making. 
Yeah. So I think that uh, at the expensive MRI in Meniere's disease right now is a little experimental. It's a little bit like electrocochleography for uh, endolymphatic high drops. People used to get it all the time, especially transtympanic electrocochleography. But basically, if the patient was symptomatic on that day, it was going to be positive. And if they were having a really good day, it would most of the time be negative. Can I ask a quick question uh, sure. that kind of relates to this? Does Everybody with Meniere's have endolymphatic high drops, and does everybody with endolymphatic high drop kind of lead into Meniere's or have Meniere's? Does it go both ways? Oh, that's a really great question. Everyone with uh, endolymphatic high drops is a general word for an accumulation of endolymph. And all patients with Meniere's disease clinically have this accumulation of endolymph, something you could see on the MRI, and it can be really extreme. You know, basically the the membranous labyrinth is a very complicated balloon. And when you blow it up, it, uh, it distorts. And uh, the cochlear duct in particular, uh, which is uh, high frequencies at the bottom of the cochlea and then low frequencies up at the top of the cochlea, at the top of the two and a half turns, at the top of the, uh, th that is like a balloon. And the balloon is shaped like a baseball bat. The high frequency end is very narrow. And that's where the high frequencies are because the basilar membrane is very short. The strings are short and thick. And at the long end, you have the low frequency strings, which are longer and thinner. Well, when you blow up a balloon, the shape of a baseball bat, the big end, the fat end blows up proportionally more. Why? Because there's more surface area on the interior of the balloon for the pressure to act against. So when we get fluctuations in the levels of endolymph, we get low frequency fluctuating hearing loss. We get low frequency tinnitus. Sometimes that distortion, that, that the membranes can blow up so much that the basilar membrane can be pushed all the way down and underneath the osseous spiral lamina, if you can imagine that, if you're familiar with the inner ear anatomy. So uh, patients, so the distortions can be great, and they also involve the vestibular labyrinth. We um, know that uh, all patients with Meniere's disease have these distortions in the membranous labyrinth. But remarkably, there are patients who never had any history of Meniere's disease who have equally dramatic distortions. And that is a mystery to us clinically. I question maybe just to dovetail over to Liz. Are there any um, common testing patterns you see in individuals with Meniere's disease from a vestibular testing standpoint? Yeah, that's a great question. So initially, it kind of depends at what stage of the Meniere's we're at, um, because early on, especially in vestibular testing, you may have vestibular testing that's still relatively normal. Um, and then over time, with repeated damage to the inner ear, you start to see patterns that support a unilateral vestibular loss. So you may see the impacts on the calorics and VEMPs, and then eventually you may see, you know, more impacts on rotational chair. Um, but obviously with the diagnostic criteria, the hearing test is one of the most important things that we map out with Meniere's disease. And, um, you know, clinically we're looking for a lot of those oral symptoms like the fullness, tinnitus, and of course the hearing changes. So it kind of depends, which I know is like classic answer in vestibular testing, but um, beginning stages of the disease, it can go either way. You can see normal results very early on, and then slowly you'll see that accumulation. A pattern we see that I think is shared by others, and maybe Michael, you can comment, is that the head impulse test, whether you do it manually or video, is often preserved with Meniere's disease. So it's kind of confusing to a new learner because here we have a peripheral disorder that does cause diminished hearing over time and distorted vestibular function, but usually head impulse uh, testing is preserved even in the later stages of the disease in Meniere's disease. Is that what you've experienced, Michael? Uh, I, uh, <clears throat> I haven't uh, looked very closely at that, frankly, but I think that uh, the reason that that could be the case is the preservation over time of uh, type 1 hair cells compared to type 2 hair cells in the vestibular labyrinth. And, uh, you know, the differential role of these hair cells and the different calyx formations, 
that support them is still a an area of study. Uh, we just really have uh, it's a extremely difficult to study, and we don't um, understand the evolutionary significance of the populations and their relative functions. Mm. One uh, last question to dovetail off something you said earlier. The otologist I work with typically get an MRI in a subject they suspect has Meniere's disease because they have an asymmetric sensory neural hearing loss. Do you routinely get MRI in individuals with Meniere's or will you, if the clinical history is pretty clear, will you punt on that? And I guess the way we've been practicing lately is if we're going to get an MRI anyhow for asymmetric hearing loss, we go ahead and do the high drops protocol. So not only are we ruling out that they don't have an acoustic tumor, but we can say, well, yes, you don't have a tumor, but there is the presence of high drops, which makes it even more likely you have Meniere's. Um, so do you routinely get MRI imaging when you suspect Meniere's or not, I guess is my question. Um, I, <clears throat> I usually wouldn't say routinely, uh, although uh, I know of a few exceptional cases where people presented with Meniere's disease and the sudden hearing loss related to uh, the, for an initial Meniere's episode, and they had the vestibular schwannoma on that side. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure, you know, and, and now the, nowadays, because of watching and waiting, uh, we are never really sure whether those schwannomas are really the cause of disease. You know, sometimes they're stable and uh, we watch them for years and they happen to be incidental because they don't change. And then one last Meniere's question, and then we'll get off Meniere's disease because this podcast isn't just about Meniere's today, but do you routinely advise patients to follow a low salt diet and or use a diuretic if they have Meniere's, Michael? Uh, I, <clears throat> I typically do not. Uh, <laughs> remarkably, uh, I have a really good success treating Meniere's disease and patients discover on their own if they are salt sensitive. Uh, they discover that, oh, you know, I eat the pepperoni pizza and potato chips uh, uh, during a football game, and I had a Meniere's attack, and uh, they, they discover it. If patients are, uh, almost all patients who I see have already been treated by numerous physicians, so most of them have already been on uh, diuretics and have tried uh, salt restriction. And my feeling is that if you don't discover within a month of the medications and salt restriction that your ear is behaving better, you're probably not one of those salt sensitive <clears throat> individuals. Paradoxically, uh, the rescue medicine that I use very frequently for Meniere's disease <clears throat> is fludrocortisone. Patients with Meniere's disease respond really well to glucocorticoids, uh, prednisone and dexamethasone. They uh, the inner ear loves these, not just because it increases blood flow, but because they cause, uh, they act on glucocorticoid receptors that cause a significant gene upregulation up in the inner ear <clears throat> and help the inner ear maintain its homeostasis. But it turns out that <clears throat> some uh, uh, work uh, by, uh, at Oregon Health Sciences University by uh, Dennis Troon uh, over the years, uh, was really focused on this. And he gave people, he, he gave animals a glucocorticoid receptor blockers, and they still got better with the, um, with the glucocorticoids. And it turns out that there's this incidental contact of a binding of glucocorticoids with the mineralocorticoid receptors. Now, mineralocorticoids are uh, really responsible for most of the show. The uh, mineralocorticoids are salt steroids. You, and it's okay to take them all the time if you don't, if you tolerate them. They actually cause your body to hold on to salt. People gain about four or five pounds of water weight when they take them. The inner ear and the kidney use them in order to create, to, to pump ions in the case to concentrate urine in the case of the kidney and to concentrate endolymph in the case of the inner ear. So isn't it amazing that you can give a medication to people who have been told to restrict salt that actually causes the body to hold on to salt and that causes rescue type clinical improvement in so many of them. 
That's really interesting to me that you had mentioned people can be salt sensitive or not salt sensitive when it comes to Meniere's disease. Because I think a lot of people hear Meniere's and they think low sodium diet or um, they have to avoid salt and that's what they're told. And, you know, looking back to patients, I have some patients that do just fine, you know, resuming their normal diet or they don't see any difference when they, you know, do assume that low sodium. It kind of shadows or mimics or sounds very similar to people with migraine like symptoms who are some are sensitive to food triggers and some aren't. Is there some overlap, some general overlap there? Because I know people with veneers are likely to also have migraine or overlapping symptoms. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Danielle. This is a really interesting point. Uh, you know, the prevalence of migraine in the general population is 13%. And among patients with Meniere's disease, it's 56%. And among patients with bilateral Meniere's disease, it's 85%. And this is just migraine that is really has really follows the strict criteria. You don't have to be a, a, a neurologist to, uh, to sort it out. And um, one of the most provocative, and so we think, I think, now my personal belief and uh, is that Meniere's disease is a complication of migraine in many individuals. So. There are families that have been followed who have migraine, which is a known genetic disease. And within those families are patients who have migraine and vertigo. But those patients actually have, have been documented to have Meniere's disease. So there's a tendency for uh, the Meniere's disease to, be, to, to um, involve a subset of those patients um, in families with migraine. Now, what is one of the most common triggers for migraine activity. Dehydration. So you eat a lot of salt, you get dehydrated, you get a migraine, the ear is the innocent bystander to that migraine storm. And that I think is a better explanation for more of the salt sensitivity than, um, than simply eating salt and it accumulates in the inner ear and causes more hydroxide. That's a really great explanation and an awesome visual connecting that, um, you know, I think turns on a bunch of light bulbs. That's really great. Thank you. I had a question. Maybe I missed it. You, they administered orally or transtympanic? Oh, orally. Yeah, that's right. So you can take aldosterone, which is pure, but fludrocortisone is something that unless a patient has uncontrolled hypertension or congestive heart failure, they can take this very safely. Cardiologists, you know, give this out like candy to older patients who have orthostatic hypotension. Mm -hmm. They say, you just need a little bit more tiger in your tank. Take one of these a day and you won't get dizzy every time you sit up at first thing in the morning. What's the dosage you tend to use? Oh, it's a 0 0.1 milligram. And, and, and I, I talked to a couple of different cardiologists about this. They say, what dosage do you use? I said, usually I give them a 0.1 milligram um, daily. And they just chuckled and said, oh, you were worried about that? It's really next to nothing. So it's safe and very effective. And I must, I probably have 100 Meniere's patients who are well controlled we're never well controlled until they started. Okay, let's uh, go back to Liz here for a minute. Can you explain the difference between OVEMP and CVEMP testing and clinical indications for that sort of testing to the, our listeners? This reminds me of my grad school practical, but yes, I can. No, I'm just kidding. Um, VEMPs are an electrophysiologic measure where basically we use electrodes to measure the muscle potential. And really the goal in this is we're looking for the muscle to contract or relax. So there's two different measurements that we know of that connect to the vestibular system. The first one is CVEMP, so that's a cervical VEMP. And uh, we actually record it on the SCM muscle. So we have the patient usually turn their head and contract this muscle. And it gives us an idea of what's going on with the saccule and the inferior vestibular nerve. So it's probably the more widely used of the two. Um, mainly because I think it's the only piece, it's the only piece of the puzzle that looks at the inferior vestibular or branch of the vestibular nerve. So most people are using CVEMPs. They tend to be um, something that can be recorded into later ages. 
OVIMP is an ocular VIMP, so it's recorded on the inferior oblique muscle, and we have the patients just look their eyes upward in order for that muscle to come to the surface. And um, it looks at the utricle and the superior portion of the vestibular nerve, so it's a little bit less likely used, I think, still in practice because we have other measurements that look at that top branch of the nerve, such as the caloric. As far as clinical indications, I it's very interesting because I, especially thinking from the PT realm, I've had many PTs ask me, you know, if someone just has an absent CVAMP or an absent OVAMP, what should we do? And it's a great question. VEMPs are fairly new in the field. 1974 was the first uh, cervical VEMP that was reported. And so they're pretty new. Um, I think we're going to find that they have, if I could make a prediction, that uh, there's some early research about fall risk and absent VEMPs. But I know as a vestibular audiologist, I use VEMPs to help describe how much of the inner ear is impacted as far as function. Um, and that can give good indication for a patient's prognosis, better help with their diagnosis, or um, you know, give them an estimation of maybe how long therapy might take. Because if more than one branch is impacted, they probably have a more significant injury. Can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. Um, so with OVEMPs, you know, I, I would imagine getting an OVEMP is probably a significantly more comfortable than getting calorics. Um, is there a reason why we wouldn't use OVEMPs more than subjecting patients to calorics? Is it um, more or less sensitive? Is there a difference in um, the quality of the testing results? So even though I said calorics also look at the superior branch of the nerve, they look at something different than OVEMPs look at. So they look at the horizontal semicircular canal. And what's interesting about vestibular testing, the most common question we get is, can't we do this instead of this or this instead of this? Every vestibular test that exists looks at a different part of the ear or a different frequency or um, you know speed of movement a lot of times of the inner ear. And I think it's uh, there's a wide spectrum of what the inner ear can do. And so sometimes our tests just look at one frequency of that section of the ear. And we know there's many organs we need to look at. So the caloric, can I don't think will ever, at least at this point, be replaced because it looks at a very low frequency stimulus. It does look at that horizontal semicircular canal. And many times um, in vestibular disorders, you know, a lot of times we can first see indication in the low frequencies. So the caloric is a really good indicator of maybe early onset other issues going on. We found that we use CVAMP at our center and we find it extremely helpful for it for reinforcing the diagnosis of superior canal dehiscence. And so we found it very valuable for that. I've been a little disappointed. I wanted Michael's take on this. I haven't found it as useful as a test for measuring hypofunction one year compared to the other. Do you have any comments on that, Michael? Uh, Yeah, two parts of the answer. One is uh, that the reason that OVAMP persists is that there tends to be, in patients who have uh, third window syndromes, there is less overlap between those patients who are normal and those patients who have a pathologically open third windows using OVAMP than with CVAMP. So there's better separation of the disease population. And that's the only reason that um, <clears throat> that uh, remains popular. So I, I typically get CVAMP on all my patients who are also getting calorics. But if I suspect a third window, I, I'll add, add on OVEMP because it takes extra time um, uh, to do. Uh, second part of your question, and actually the real question was, do I, how, do, how do I use it clinically? <clears throat> I, I think uh, when I see a patient who has an acute vestibular syndrome, uh, I want as Liz mentioned, to get a measure of the superior and the inferior division of the vestibular nerves. And there are two separate, uh, say, neuronitis syndromes. Patients can come and they can have a superior vestibular neuronitis or an inferior vestibular neuronitis that present uh, clinically differently. And And those clinical differences are backed up by the laboratory testing. A patient who has a superior vestibular neuronitis will have some compromise uh, of the superior vestibular nerve, which innervates the superior crista, the horizontal crista, and the utricle. So, because and because the utric, but but the um, 
but the vamp, so, so the caloric will be diminished in that patient. And, but the C-vamp will be normal, the inferior vestibular nerve. There won't be any change in the threshold or amplitude of the response. What that patient will have is BPPV as a secondary part of their recovery because in many of the, the utricle is injured and they get secondary BPPV, which impairs the ability of the central nervous system to clearly see the differential tone and to perform its compensation task. You know, the, the, the world is too messy to see the problem right. And so you get the BPPV out of the way and now the compensation can occur. Um, which has, but, but that compensation has been stalled uh, until the BPPV is cured. Another patient uh, who had the same vestibular crisis, went to the emergency room, spent a couple of days in the hospital, uh, was 80% better in the first five days, and then was getting better, uh, completely better over the next five weeks, has um, no BPPV, and you get a caloric, and it's normal. But they're CVAMP response is um, absent. And so there is a case where you have no secondary BPPV, more quick, complete compensation for their vestibular deficit, and, a, um, and no uh, normal calories. So as physical therapists or people that are working with this patient population, we're less likely to see that uh, inferior vestibular nerve neuronitis patient in comparison to somebody that had neuronitis of the in, of the superior vestibular nerve. Yeah. So I, I think it's really important. Uh, I explain to patients who are not, uh, there are two kinds of patients who, who really respond to therapy. And those are mostly the patients who have a single problem that the brain can see without a second interfering problem. So some patients have a single problem and the compensation can be pushed quickly uh, as, as, so long as the patient is active and uh, is able to participate in vestibular exercises. But other pa the other group of patients have a secondary problem like BPPV or migraine that's in the way. And I say, your brain is working on um, a big task here. It's, it's writing a term paper and your, um, your roommate is partying all the time. And uh, so we got to get rid of the roommate so that you can accomplish, accomplish this other big task. Yeah, I would point out to the listeners, if you're more of a novice uh, therapist, one of the most common mistakes I made early in my career was not realizing how common secondary BPPV was with labyrinthitis, vestibular neuritis, Meniere's. It's really, really common. Uh, patients that have a sudden sensory neural hearing loss can often have a secondary BPPV after. So, you know, you do your initial exam and you're pretty confident your patient has unilateral vestibular loss. And in your mind, you get too married to that and you don't, you're not always open to rechecking for BPPV at repeated exams. That's one of the most common mistakes I made early in my career. So whenever I see a patient back for hypofunction, who's going through exercise treatment, I just standardly recheck positioning tests every time I see them, even if it's just a sideline test. Um, but I would definitely do repeated positioning tests um, in subjects that have a recent uh, unilateral loss, especially if they're not progressing as you expect um, with their therapy. Oh, I agree completely. And because it can um, come and go and be yep. present, uh, not, not be present at the time of your initial assessment, but be an important yep. part of the ongoing. I, I now educate my patients I see with hypofunction, I also educate them about BPPV and what the difference is and what they'll experience if it does develop because it's so common and that I need to see them pretty quickly if that does evolve to get assessed for that because it's so common. So I, I review BPPV and those with hypofunction just so they understand the difference. Half of them before they came to see me were told they had BPPV anyhow, even though they really have hypofunction. So some of them know a little bit about it coming in. So it gets confusing to them because you're going over two different diagnoses, but you, I think it's important to take the time that they understand the difference between the two because they're That's, managed so differently. It's a really good point too. And I know it's a talk in the audiology world quite a bit about with uh, patients that have a very clear BPPV history. Should we just check positionals, test that, treat it, and then 
maybe re refer on or, you know, bring them back for testing. And I know at least the most recent clinic I've been working at, we did a full assessment because many times these patients have BPBV and something else. And, you know, it's still fair to treat them first. I think that is a very appropriate way to go about it. But um, I think it's not a clear, everybody just has one vestibular issue. Many times it's multiple. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. We'll go back to Michael here. Is there any specific uh, management that for migraine related dizziness that you have especially found helpful? It's a, it's a very obviously common disorder that we see. Well, uh, migraine is so prevalent and is such a uh, complicated uh, disorder. It is a threshold disease. So you have a particular genetic susceptibility to migraine and uh, you can thank your parents for it. Uh, there, are are, there are partial triggers that accumulate in different ways on different days. <clears throat> they may be hormonal, stress, you know, they're physiologic triggers, dietary triggers, and environmental triggers. And so because they are mostly partial triggers, we get away with our triggers all the time. Thank goodness. <clears throat> but if they add up in the wrong way, so it's Christmas season, it's a Friday evening, it's very, you're fatigued at the end of the week, you are, uh, uh, haven't slept very well for a couple of days, it's a rainy evening, and you have chocolate and red wine, which you've had two other days this week with no problem, but tonight they're going to add up and put you over your limit. So lifestyle changes are really important. Given all the triggers for migraine, uh, the, the biggest, the number one and number two factors for increased migraine activity in an individual is stress and fatigue. Mm -hmm. And we tend to get into the middle of our lives and, you know, hormones bring on migraine activity in adolescence and uh, continue to help uh, to uh, uh, challenge us when hormone, whenever hormones change throughout our lives, but uh, migraine that is persistent throughout the month <clears throat> and through, through our lives uh, often, especially in the midsection of our lives when we're most productive, is usually um, a consequence of having so many balls up in the air because we're type A, we're used to doing it all. And, uh, you know, I'm constantly telling people that, you know, you're one of those people. You can keep eight or 10 balls up in the air, but maybe just six or seven is enough for a little while. Yeah. And so other times people also just have anxiety. They're going through a stressful time. Uh, it could be a physiologic stress from an illness or an emotional or psychological, financial. Uh, and so, and they come back after treatment and they say, I am so much better. And the reason that they're so much better is that their job changed, their supervisor changed, their relationship changed. Uh, some um, condition uh, that was, that they had not acknowledged was so um, difficult for them had finally, the tension was relieved and they weren't pushed over their threshold. So I would say lifestyle changes are king in, in migraine treatment, which is good news for people who don't want to take medications. You know, but medications are also the way out for a lot of people. And I usually uh, find that people are willing to take medicines rather than change their lives. Regardless of how maladaptive yeah, they are, so and there is yes. no, the only good thing about that is that <clears throat> neurologic conditions of any sort have a tendency to chronification. So if you have a patient who has symptoms and you say, "Okay, I want to do lifestyle changes. I want to take vitamins or magnesium," <clears throat> I don't want to wait six or eight months for the of their chronic symptoms before treating them because symptoms which become chronic are become more durable frequently and you're missing an opportunity to treat them while they're easier to treat. I'll say from the rehab side of things, education is one of the biggest first steps that we do with our patients. And I actually use an article that you co-authored Dr. Teixeira with uh, Dr. Carey, the uh, more than a, a headache article, because mm -hmm. A lot of people hear migraine and they just immediately go to head pain as a symptom. And we have to back up and say, no, 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 there's so much more. Let's start from the beginning. And once you kind of get into convincing them that there are more symptoms to a migraine than just head pain, 
you kind of walk them down um, identifying triggers and going that route. So patient education absolutely is huge, followed by that multidisciplinary approach um, to working with other people within that uh, treatment. So medications, um, maybe some vestibular therapy if it's been too chronic and, you know, just having uh, to work with the patient identifying triggers and how to lower those thresholds. I agree. And thank you for <clears throat> pointing that. That was the, that, that short little handout was one of the best things I ever, ever wrote because it really has been uh, used by so many people and is, uh, and is now updated. Uh, John Carey uh, and I updated it just this last fall. And uh, so that's up on the Hopkins site if you want to look, take a look at the new version. We'll link that in the show notes because anybody listening um, who treats this patient population, I highly recommend you download it, you print it, and you have it ready to go to hand to patients because it is probably the most common handout that I give my patients on a daily basis. So thank you so much for for writing such as a great, great piece of uh, patient education. Well, thanks. Well, one of the things I, in terms of patient education, I'm a huge fan of that. And I um, recently, uh, I have a website which has a lot of topic-oriented printed information, but then I have a, a YouTube site that has lots of videos for patients to watch. And very, very important for, our, for a lot of these patients who have BPPV. I, have, I may have specific exercises that I want them to, I want to prescribe or variations of um, uh, Brandt-Darroff exercises, depending on which canal they, uh, they have trouble with. And uh, rather than... Um, and the easiest way for them to do these things correctly is to follow a video. Mm -hmm. So I have a sheet called homework and it's covered with QR codes. And uh, they, those codes are links to their homework. So I say this, this one, you know, two weeks home CRP uh, once a day. And then after that, two weeks of Brant Darroff exercises mm -hmm. uh, or I'll, uh, but, or I'll, check uh, the migraine handout. And there's a QR code that takes them right to that. And then um, uh, while you're driving home, I want you to listen to this podcast or uh, something, an interview about vestibular migraine and its treatment, which we've done. And I check the box and they point, and people more and more know how to point their camera at these codes and go to the content. So they drive home and they listen. Yeah. to this content and it's been a very efficient way to get people enrolled usually when they're driving home they're there with their family member mm -hmm. the family members who need to support their efforts to stay on track especially if they have been off on their own um you know in their own rabbit holes in the internet and they're yeah. still convinced they have a csf leak or this must be chronic Your disease lime or something like that so yeah. Uh, th that's uh, been very positive. When I, when I have an intern with me who's like a novice in the area of vestibular, we'll see a patient with BPPV and they'll see the positioning test and then we'll do the maneuver and then they can often see that it's all cleared up when it's done. And then I go through patient education with the patient. I leave the office. A common question I'll ask like a newer student is, what was more powerful or more important, me completing a maneuver on that patient or explaining to them precisely what's going on and how to manage it and helping them understand their condition. And they're like, well, the maneuver. And I'm like, well, it, yeah, it's all, I mean, I'm glad that we can clear up their current belt, but it's a condition that commonly recurs and the education is so powerful because it takes their anxiety from here and brings it, you know, way down when they understand their disorder. So it's education so important. Just one last thing to wrap up with migraine. Is there a particular pharmacologic agent you found helpful with, um, from a prophylactic standpoint with migraine? Well, there are five main types of medications we use for treatment of migraine. Four of them are old types of medicines. You know, these are uh, medications that are for depression, for blood pressure, for seizures, and more recently, migraine-specific CGRP medications, which are new, but they're expensive because they're new, they're expensive. Mm -hmm. And I explained to patients that we aren't looking for side effects. We're looking for a medication that's both effective and tolerable. And we're going to have to try these medicines uh, one after the next. And uh, so we just see a patient and we say, this is plan A. And then if that doesn't work, or if you can't tolerate it, you call and say, I'm ready for plan B. And that way we don't waste these valuable weeks between our 
or months between our appointments. And uh, then plan C, D, E, we map it out according to medications they're already taking and other uh, problems that they have. And those medications are calcium channel blockers. That's a type of blood pressure medication. Beta blockers, another blood pressure medication. Sodium channel blockers, which are seizure medications. Um, serotonin drugs. And then these CGRP medications. And if I had to choose just one. That was my next question. <laughs> that was it. That would be uh, nortriptyline, which is an old antidepressant. And nortriptyline, uh, I explained to people, this is a terrible medicine. It was a, I don't think you have depression. It was, a, it was one of the few antidepressants available for treatment of major depression in the 70s, however. And the reason it was such a bad medicine is that to get the antidepressant effect, you had to take very large doses. And at large doses, it had too many side effects. But if I were a psychiatrist treating depression, I would start at 100 milligrams and go up. And in your case, and most of the patients with vestibular migraine, I treat them with 10 milligrams for a week and go up to 20 milligrams. That's a very modest dose. So I just remind them so that they don't come back and say, I never took the medicine because I read the side effect list. Yeah. I say, that's, that's the same list. It's the only list that's ever going to exist. Uh, there's no list for the low doses. Right. Uh, just try it. And, uh, but if, if for some reason it's not compatible to, for you, uh, then uh, we're not, it's not workable. We're going to move on. And the reason that so many people respond to it is that in addition to having some serotonin effect, it is a medium channel sodium channel blocker and a medium potency sodium channel blocker and a medium potency calcium channel blocker. And it also is anticholinergic. Anticholinergic is really important because most patients with chronic migraine have hyperactivity in the cholinergic system, which makes them hypotensive and they have orthostasis. And they also get uh, gastric problems, so GI irritable bowel symptoms. And another thing that I, my patients have, uh, they often don't, aren't sleeping well. And this medicine relaxes you. You take it before bed. So in so many ways, it can be really helpful. And uh, so it just seems to push a lot of buttons and be perfectly tailored to our vestibular migraine patients. Now, in patients who are under 50, uh, they might feel, even with the low doses, like, you know, I just don't have the same energy that I am used to having. But so anyone over 50, I prescribe it right away. And in younger patients, I tend to start with the other medications, topiramate, which uh, can cause weight loss, which is a big sell for some patients. It decreases your appetite. And then, uh, and patients who are anxious, and a lot of these patients are anxious, I'll start them on propranolol, which is the oldest known preventive medication for migraine. And propranolol, as you know, the beta blocker blocks the effects of adrenaline. So if you're getting dizzy and you're getting anxious from it, your body is squirting out adrenaline, you, your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, well, that physiologic response, which enhances the anxiety, is blocked when you take propranolol. So it helps your attempts to help somebody to uh, avoid having this counterproductive emotional response to mm -hmm. the vertiginous symptoms they're having. It's great um, information. Well, let's conclude with one last test, and I'll direct this to Liz. And boy, you could probably spend an hour on this, but what are some common pitfalls that therapist and physician should be aware of um, with vestibular function testing? Like what are the, some of the common errors you see in test administration or interpretation? This is like where we mess up. I feel like I'm being very vulnerable here. No, I think in vestibular testing, a lot can go wrong. Um, and I think what's interesting about our field is, you know, many of us with our license, we're uh, supposed to feel just as equally qualified to do hearing tests and vestibular evaluations, but uh, it really does require special experience to do vestibular. I think the most common things that go wrong have to do with just technical error. So caloric testing, it it's a quite easy test to do, uh, but you know, sometimes if you're not directing the air into the ear in the right way, you can have really abnormal results that don't make sense. Um, with VEMP testing, it's electrode placement and doing some of those uh, troubleshooting techniques. 
And, um, you know, with video goggles, I think a lot of times there's over interpretation of certain eye movements. So uh, we're obviously looking at the eyes under video goggles, but even a simple blink can cause a slight torsional eye movement because of Bell's phenomenon. So there's, there's little things that um, can get over interpreted, I think. So it, it can be a little bit of everything, but I think in general, um, a lot of times when the testing, if it doesn't match up, I always try to repeat it. And I think it's totally okay if the test results don't make sense to recommend a retest, because if that is the determinant factor for a patient's diagnosis or treatment plan, you want to be sure about the test results. And I know that's probably the patient's worst nightmare to like go through calorics again, or, you know, come back to see us. But I really think it's, you if it's true, it will repeat. And I think it's always worth taking that time to repeat it if you're unsure, or if you need it for your treatment. I think another thing, especially with VNG testing that we've reinforced at our centers when we get like, I don't know, poor pursuit curves or saccadic abnormalities is keep, re before you take the equipment off, repeat it several times and really encourage best performance with the patient and have them concentrate. And a lot of times some things we may have seen with the first testing trial or two evaporate with practice and when the patient gives you their best effort. So yeah. I've found that to be helpful at our center. It's interesting because, um, and this, I've used to talk about this a lot, but there's a lot of patient motivation required to get good test results. And I think it's partially on the patient and partially on the examiner, because a lot of times I feel like I'm a cheerleader with testing. I'm like, you can do it, keep it up. And I'm sure physical therapists, you know, you relate to that very well, but it's very easy to not give your best performance. And that can be challenging because just as simple of like not opening their eyes completely can lead to a poor result. So yeah, I think exactly what you're saying, especially with any test that may indicate central abnormalities, I'm always like, let's repeat it because if it's there, it will be there again. Right, exactly. Yeah, I used to at our center pinch hit and do VNGs once in a while. And um, boy, if you have somebody that's hard of hearing and you know, has some cognitive impairment, after I was done doing a VNG for like an hour and a half, I felt like I needed to go have a cigarette and I don't smoke. Um, it, like it was draining. It was tiring. Um, yes. You felt like you just said, you felt, you feel like to get a really good high quality test. It takes a lot of effort on your part to keep cueing the patient and getting yeah. their eyes open and getting their gaze in the right spot and alert yes. enough. And, and yeah, it's a very a little... long appointment. I mean, we spend a lot of times, I mean, most of the time it's between one and a half to two and a half hours that a vestibular audiologist will spend with the patient. And it's just like constant, you know, you're unplugging and putting all types of equipment on. So that's why I think some errors can happen just because you have to make sure everything technically is perfectly calibrated and the stimulus is good. And um, I think it can, it can get hard to keep up that good of standard. Yeah. I, I think you made a great point, Liz, about uh, just even directing the stimulus. Uh, sometimes you'll say, what were the chances that five patients in a row had a right caloric weakness. And uh, it was really just that the, the positioning and the, it wasn't, you know, the technician wasn't, or the person performing the test for some reason on that right side there, maybe their back own back hurt or something mm -hmm. like that. They're not really getting positioned. Right. And then of course we have the, we have a double check on that. Now, mm -hmm. with if you're doing V hit at the same time as your vestibular exam, and you say, gosh, all these people had caloric weaknesses, but none of them had any of the corresponding changes on their V-hit. Yes. And I think, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I saw a poster at one of our audiology conferences a while back that even your handedness, so a caloric requires you to mm -hmm. hold, um, you know, an air stimulator or water stimulator, stimulator. So even your handedness can affect the effectiveness of the stimulus. So I think there's a lot of those examiner factors. And I mean, the good thing about vestibular testing is we have a lot of um, corresponding tests or at least complementary tests. So if it doesn't make sense, I always would tell students rotating with me, check you first. It might've been one of your errors before you put it on as a possible diagnosis or result. Yeah. But one of the things that we put on our um, report sheet, because it seems to be so important in telling a story and um, is something that can be important as a, a piece of data in time is whether or not there's resting nystagmus and evoked head shake nystagmus. And if that is corresponds to the caloric weakness, then we have a lot more confidence in that result. So, you know, in terms of having a compensated or an uncompensated uh, weakness. One last comment on caloric testing is 
a fallacy I had, I guess, when I was novice level is I'd have patients come after caloric testing and tell me that they didn't feel one bit dizzy during it. And I thought, well, was the test not done right? Because you should have been dizzy. A lot of especially elderly individuals don't have any sensation of dizziness during caloric testing, even though they're getting responses. So not all patients with caloric testing get a subjective phenomena with the test that they feel like they're rotating. And we're kind of getting into calling that vestibular agnosia. And that's uh, an instance where subjects are getting vestibular stimulation or they like have BPPV and they barely perceive it when it's, mm -hmm. when it's occurring. Um, and that can happen a lot in the elderly. So just because your patient tells you after caloric testing, they didn't feel anything, don't feel like necessarily there was something wrong with the test. It just may be that's how their brain operates. So. And then it tends to be sometimes the opposite with uh, yeah. migrantist patients have a hyperactivity to the stimulus. So it is kind of interesting because there's definitely a perception piece. And I always ask like in rotational chair testing or caloric, like, tell me when you feel dizzy or do you feel dizzy just because I'm interested. I think right now with where we are in the research, it doesn't necessarily change too much about maybe their final diagnosis, but I think it maybe could change treatment in the future. Yeah. It is very interesting how brains <laughs> have different sensitivities to vestibular stimuli. That's for sure. It's not the patient. Uh, it's not the disease the patient has is the type of patient that has the disease. Um, just seems to ring true with this patient population. Well, thank you all for your time. Um, it was a great discussion. Um, thank you, Abby, Danielle, Liz, and Michael for your time. We really appreciate it. Um, Absolutely. I, I jumped in at the beginning. I'll jump in at the end to say thank you, audience, for listening to this. I hope you enjoyed this discuss discussion as much as I did because, wow, such great topics covered. Great information for both clinicians and patients alike. And we'll be sure to post some of the information provided in, in our show notes so that you can easily access it. Until next time, thank you all. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources, including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and BPMBV treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.